0: From Luminary and Built-It Productions, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, Ken Coleman, America's career coach.
1: We're so programmed to get good grades so we can get to a good school and get a good job that we forgot how to wonder what do you wonder
0: about doing? Ken Coleman on how to find work with meaning.
1: Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools,
0: Ken Coleman is known as America's career coach. You may have heard his syndicated radio call-in show or read some of his books, including The Proximity Principle. What Ken does, in short, is to help people think about what kind of work they'd find meaningful and how to connect with the people that can help them get into that kind of work. Ken's ability to offer advice and coaching on a massive scale comes from a series of hard-won experiences. In his mid-30s, he embarked on a completely new career path as a broadcaster, and with no experience and no connections, he started to plot out a strategy to turn a dream into a reality. Ken grew up just outside Williamsburg, Virginia, in a town where he says everybody knew everybody. And from an early age, he knew he wanted to be of service in some way maybe because his dad was a pastor and a community leader. So perhaps not surprisingly, Ken initially pursued a path of public service. I was 10
1: years of age in 1984, and I'm sitting on the living room floor. Back against the couch, my dad's sitting next to me in uh, this teeny tiny TV, and we're watching the Republican National Convention, and this guy named Ronald Reagan pops on the screen, and everybody's cheering for him and going crazy. And I was uh, just kind of playing probably with some G.I. Joe men, kind of zoned in, zoned out. And my dad's clearly paying attention. I don't know who this guy is. And I'll never forget this. And this speaks to really my love of great communicators at 10. I mean, incredibly immature, No idea who Ronald Reagan is at that point. And I watched his acceptance speech for his second term, and I was enthralled. And I began to ask a lot of questions about him and learned that my dad was a big fan of his. And long story short, that was the the early moments of me beginning to be fascinated by public service. Hmm. And that just turned into this deep passion and excitement for all things politics and loved it and was very involved as a teenager.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I was, too. And when I was 16, I had a chance to to live in Washington, D.C. as a congressional page. They had a program back then where Mm 16-year-olds from all over the country could serve in Congress, I came from the other side of of the, the political yeah. aisle, but uh, <laughs> right, also right. super interested in politics as a kid. Um, uh, you do this work. I mean, you you ended up working in in Virginia politics throughout most of your twenties, but but eventually kind of left. Uh, what happened? Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, so I got in to what I thought was this is the elevator and uh, worked on a uh, gubernatorial race. In 1997, for Jim Gilmore, he was a sitting attorney general, mm-hmm. and we win. And I go from running three congressional districts st- on a statewide campaign, reporting directly to the campaign manager. And at 22, we win, and I've got this opportunity to work for the governor, and I'm going to have the title of special assistant to the governor. And it was super awesome, guy. I was wearing suits every day. I had a big <laughs> office. I was sitting in meetings yeah. with, you know. Uh, career bureaucrats who are probably looking at me going, oh, geez, here's the next crop of, you know, wet behind the ear, you know, idealists, whippersnappers. And I'm driving the governor's, you know, legislative and bureaucratic agenda. And about six weeks in, it hits me. I'm bored out of my skull because political campaign life is very different than governing life. Governing life moves at the speed of a snail. (laughs) And campaign life is like, it's like a video game, one of those military video games, you know, uh, that my kids play. It's just nonstop. And there's something that's really, really attractive about that as a young person uh, who's all about ideals. And then you get into the governing side. And honestly, I just began to wither away. I could feel my soul seeping out of my body every day in these endless meetings and staring at a computer screen. (laughs) And so I lasted one year. And I said, I got to get out. If I'm going to run for office one day,
0: I need wow. a real resume anyway. Wow. I need a business resume, a leadership resume. Mm-hmm. So I got out, and 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 I guess to start building your resume, you and your wife Stacy moved to to Nashville pretty soon after, I guess, and and you got an opportunity to work with this guy, John Maxwell, um, in Atlanta, and he he's a a lot of people know who he is. He's a former pastor who's who's become a kind of like a leadership guru, and he's. He's built an empire, like books and public speaking and, and everything you know, around that. And and that was his business, right? That's right. Simulcast events. Everything was based
1: on John and yeah. his content and the personality of John. So they brought me in because I'd been working in Nashville uh, in the Speaker Bureau industry. And so I knew a lot of speakers in the leadership and business space because I'd been booking their speaking gigs. Hmm. And so built a nice – uh, network of relationships just by you know being their agent. And so I came in to recruit and manage other personalities that had content that fit within John's overall philosophy with the goal of building out multiple platforms of content and revenue that would give the company a long-term life.
0: I guess uh, while you were living in Atlanta – and this is one of those stories. I mean, a lot of people say lightning or light bulb moments don't happen; they're not real. Or some people will, will you know, will describe a light bulb moment, but say, you know, not not quite sure how significant it was. Um, I've had them in my life. Um, yeah. And you have had them, and there's one in particular that, that you've you've talked about and, and written about, which was Oprah. You, you were just watching yep. Oprah in an interview. And that was – and it's funny because I've interviewed probably ten people in the last, I don't know, five years who've all said that Oprah, something about Oprah that she said or wrote, triggered a thought or an idea yep. in their head that led to something mm-hmm. they went to, which is amazing. What was, mm-hmm. what was that Oprah moment for you? Yeah.
1: So it's a Friday night live. My wife, we have no kids at this point, and my wife is in New York with three friends doing the Broadway thing. And so I'm at home alone, and my favorite TV show uh, at that time, and I'd say it's top five all time for me, was Larry King Live. A totally underrated show. Oh, yeah. And so here I am sitting there and watching Larry, and Oprah's his guest. And he says to Oprah, and I'm paraphrasing, Um, And she's at the top of her game at this point. Yeah. I mean, everything's booming. And he says to her, would you ever consider running for U.S. Senate from Illinois or even president? And she immediately dismisses the question. Oh, absolutely not. Something along those lines. And Larry, you know, is kind of surprised, as I was. And he says, why so certain? And she said, and again, I'm paraphrasing. She said, Larry, between my show... Uh, my O Magazine, uh, the live event tours, and all the things we're doing, I influence way more people than I could ever influence if I was a politician. And so it's just not for me. So I'm sitting there watching that. (laughs) And I mean, when you say lightning bolt, that really, really did happen. It was to my soul. Wow. And I was like, she's right. First thing was that she's right. And then the second thing, it was like, hmm, I've always loved communicating, been very comfortable in front of people, teachers, coaches, everybody would say kind of a natural influencer, blah, 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 blah. And I began to do a really quick rewind on my life and arrived at the question that moment on the couch, wait a second, is broadcasting where I'm supposed to be? So that really was the moment where I began (laughs) to even, even entertain broadcasting as scary and as intimidating as that. That thought was.
0: That was when it happened. So that – there's this moment and you see it and, and you're like, I, that's the thing I got to do. Mm-hmm. You're, I think, what, in your late 20s, early 30s at this point? Uh, at that
1: point, I have um, – boy, I'm having to rewind. I think I'm probably 31.
0: Right. But, but know, with a great uh, career, a solid oh, yeah, career. You've got a stable yeah. job. Oh, And yeah. – Making um, good money, double yeah. income, no kids. And you decide, I got to get into broadcasting. Yeah, well,
1: I decide to look into it. Okay. I, de- I, de- I go, okay, is this a thing or is this, you know, because I, I, the reason I, I'm bringing this up, guys, because I think a lot of people go through this. Mm. You start to wonder if it's your head talking to you or your heart. And what I mean by that is I had that feeling it was like a tuning fork going off inside my chest, like somebody hitting a tuning fork inside Hmm. my chest. Well, that really was my heart. I know that now looking back. But in the days and weeks that followed that moment, you start to wonder, is this arrogance? Is this uh, delusion? And that's your head. And that's where the voices of fear and doubt pop in. And it becomes this wrestling match with your head and heart. And so I just want to point that out because I think a lot of people go through that. And that's extremely real and and you got to know if it's your heart or not and so obviously I, I realized it but in those early days guy i was like oof, is this nuts are people going to think that i've lost my mind <laughs> all they know is you know uh leadership business guy who wants to be in politics and then all of a sudden i'm gonna start telling them yeah it's not politics i think i want to go into broadcasting uh-huh. it was really really scary
0: when we come back in just a moment. Ken takes the leap into broadcasting, and at first, it does not go well at all. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to Wisdom from the Top.
1: If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust
0: Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit Anthropic.com slash Claude today. Hey, welcome back to Wisdom from the Top. I'm Guy Raz. So after spending a decade in another line of work, Ken Coleman decides it's his calling to be a broadcaster – and this is something I know from personal experience, which is that broadcasting is a world full of ambitious people. And most of them have started out a lot earlier than can. And so at the age of, what, 31, 32, you started to yep. take classes from a, a local <laughs> TV producer <laughs> yeah. in Atlanta.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you know, I realized, I was like, I, I don't have a degree in this. I don't have any, any real broadcasting experience. So I called this guy. I heard a uh, ad on a uh, sports talk station that I listen to all the time. And, and so I called this dude and uh, he was a successful local producer and he had, he was just starting this class. And turns out that uh, I was the first person to ever even sign up for the class, the first person to call, the first person to come tour. And it was crazy, but it just felt right. And so uh, I showed up for the first class. It was a six-week class and it was all 20-somethings. And it was about three weeks in, guy. Before uh, all the, it was all dudes at the time, <laughs> and before a couple of them realized I wasn't an instructor, they thought I was a, a help, <laughs> a help to the big shot Jeff because I was. It's clearly ten years older than them, and uh, but it was a great experience. It was humbling, but it was exhilarating to
0: verify that this was something I wanted to do. So you're, I mean, you're kind of in your 30s, deciding that I'm going to really throw myself into this thing. And it's not, I mean, first of all, getting into into broadcasting at any age is hard. But getting yeah. into it, you know, in your 30s, when there's a whole kind of slew of people who kind of started the grind in their early 20s, that's really hard. Um, and you it was a grind for you, right? I mean, it was not it was you didn't just finish this kind of course and then land in a job. Oh, no. The course just
1: kind of told me how much I needed to do. I learned some, and you kind of get a a basic education. But then you realize, uh uh-oh, now it's the experience piece. And experience is everything in any field, but certainly in broadcasting. And then what I learned on this journey was that connections, while the currency for any career and advancement, connections in broadcasting is – I mean, it is, it's everything. It's because there's so, there's so few jobs. Yeah. It's a limited industry. And, and so I started out going, okay, I've got this course under my belt. I know I need to get some experience. Where am I going to get it? So thankfully this, this, this producer who ran this course, um, he started doing some things where he could take his students and plug them in. And, and so this is no, this is no pay at all, but he started doing a high school football broadcast game of the week. On the internet, (laughs) this is like, oh, boy, this would have been 2010, somewhere in that range. I mean, nobody's listening to audio on the internet back then. And so, you know, I was doing Friday night football games and driving an hour away from my wife and newborn. And, you know, nobody's listening except her. (laughs) And, you know, uh, the kid next to me, who's literally a kid, he's probably 20 years of age. I'm doing play by play. He's doing color. And I'm showing up before the game like I'm Jim Nance out on the field before the game talking to these (laughs) high school coaches. And they're looking at me like, who is this dude? And, you know, it was just I went all in and I started doing that. I emceed an event. Uh, in our local town, it's still a beautiful little suburb. Uh, it's made the top ten places to live a few times called Suwanee, Georgia, a suburb of Atlanta. And I got myself in and volunteered to MC Suwanee Day, figuring I just need to do anything and everything I can to meet people so they see me as this host and broadcaster. And, and I interned, walked in off the street to the number one sports talk station in Atlanta that I listened to. Talked my way in, talked to the program director, talked and letting me volunteer three days a week, three hours a day. And each one of those things, uh, as I look back, each one of those things I did, they led to something else. But more importantly, Guy, they kept my heart in the game because I was experiencing just a bit of broadcasting and what I wanted to do. And it would keep reminding my heart, you dig this, man. And it
0: kept the appetite alive. Hmm. Um, around this time, I think this was like 2010 or, or 11. Um, you'd gotten connected to someone whose family owned an, an AM, I think, an AM radio station in, in Gainesville, Georgia, and you had like the opportunity to pitch them an idea for a show, which which you called the Ken Coleman Show. What, what was the idea that you pitched? Yeah, uh, gosh, this
1: is embarrassing, but I have to answer it. Um, (laughs) the, the original idea as bad as it was came from the fact that I knew I was going to have to be different and the world didn't need another political talk show. Mm -hmm. This I knew. And so what if we do a show that has a combination of my interviews where I interview experts could be a sleep expert. One segment could be a relationship expert, could be a parenting expert, could be a nutritionist. I wanted to touch all the areas of people's lives where they want to be better and where they Uh, had pain points. And I thought, if I can do a show like that, that's positive, but practical, maybe I can stand out. And maybe I don't have to yell. And maybe I don't have to demonize somebody. And So that was the original idea. And (laughs) so that's what it was. It was one hour. And I had a rotation of really good guests. I was able to get some big time names. uh, Because at that point, I had already done some podcasting uh, for John Maxwell's organization, and I had been able to interview people like Malcolm Gladwell and Seth Godin and Jim Collins. Mm-hmm. And so I had some contacts and relationships to where I could get you know people on the show that were brilliant and could offer something different. And the station manager liked it, uh, and I did it for about uh, a year and a half uh, on Saturdays. And then they eventually gave me drive time, and they were like, "We like this. This is a positive show. That's very
0: practical, and we think people would like to hear it on their way home." I mean, it's it's kind of amazing because this is like now I don't know, probably six years after you you saw that Oprah episode. Yeah, that's right. And when you, because I remember very distinctly the first time I ever hosted a live radio show, it was a national call-in show, Talk of the Nation. I hosted it in 2008. It was my first time hosting a wow. national call-in show, and man, my heart was beating through my my chest. It was a, no question. A, in a few minutes beforehand, I was just—I I didn't know if I could. Oh, I'd be able to open my mouth. I was so scared. Do you, mar- <laughs> do you remember there. that? Do you remember that feeling?
1: i've I've been there to where you wonder where did all the liquid in my body go yeah. because I feel like my mouth is full of the Sahara desert sand, <laughs> your tongue feels like a rock, and you're right, your heart rate is out of control, blood pressure skyrocketing there's There's nothing like the fear of of live broadcasting with those safety net, yeah, how'd you get through it in those early days? Mm, I love that question um I just decided that it was going to be worth the pain. Yeah. And I decided after that first show, as painful and as awful as it was, that I was equal parts humiliated and exhilarated. Yeah. And so I just kept doing it. I wanted to get
0: better at it. I was like, this was enough fun, even though it was awful. Gee, I want to do that again. You know, there's also the the other side to this, which I think is a super important lesson, which is – you started at a, at a relatively small place, so you could also – and you probably, probably didn't, like, change the fact that you were scared and terrified and nervous, right? No. But because it was a smaller place, you could use it as a sandbox to learn how to do what you would eventually learn how to master because there weren't that many people listening. And so, you know, even if you had a catastrophic day, you could recover from it.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was tens and tens of people. That's absolutely right. I'm glad you brought this up, because this is what I teach people. You know, start small, grow slow. Um, Because, you know, it takes me back to when my dad taught me to ride a bike. Uh, I don't know if he meant to do it or just happened to be that way, but at the bottom of our home, we had a hill behind our house, and at the bottom was a flat area of common space. And he taught me to ride a bike on grass, and it was brilliant. Because he knew that if I wiped out, the damage was going to be minimal. And I think that that's the key to starting really, really small, starting your podcast, starting your YouTube channel, going to speak to 20 kids, writing your first 500 words, um, whatever it is. Um, Because you're right. The fear is just as big as if you were doing it in front of thousands. The mind really doesn't know anything better. The mind just knows, oh, this is really, really terrifying. But... At the end of the day, you can fail spectacularly and nobody even
0: cares because nobody was probably even paying attention. And and in that sandbox, I mean, you, you were able to I – mean, as you mentioned earlier, like you, you were able to interview some pretty prominent people who, who would go on to be – uh, people that you would draw on, you know, uh, again for books and, and interviews in the future. But I mean, you really—I mean, Jim Collins, for example, he's a, a major thinker on business and leadership. He's also a guest on, on 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 Wisdom for the Top this season. You know, he came onto your show. I mean, how did you? How were you able to get these folks on a show in you know in small town Gainesville, Georgia? Yeah, audacity and
1: connections. Uh-huh. Um, so people paying attention to the story. Those three years of John Maxwell brought me tremendous connections, mm. um, and so I got to know a bunch of publishers because they were always coming in and kissing John's butt. So I maintained these relationships, and um, I don't know if you know this, Guy. This is really cool. I hadn't thought of it until you just asked. Um, my very first radio show, The Ken Coleman Show, I, my first guest was Jimmy Carter, President Jimmy Carter. <laughs> wow. Yeah, but it was taped, so it wasn't live, but I taped it. But that was because he had a new devotional coming out. You know, he's famous for, you know, teaching his Sunday school class in his church in Plains, Georgia. And his devotional, I went online weeks before the show, and I looked at the publishing schedule. You know this, Publishers Weekly tells you what books are coming out. So I went online one day going, what books are coming out? And I see that Jimmy Carter's got a devotional coming out. Um. And so it was with Zondervan, and I knew the guy who was in charge of marketing books at Zondervan. So I called Tom up, and I said, Tom, I've got a new show coming out. He knew me, knew I wasn't nuts. And I said, I'd love to interview the president for my radio show. He goes, great. He goes, I'll I'll submit it to the publicist. We'll see what happens. The publicist said yes. And before you know it, I'm on the phone with Jimmy Carter taping an
0: interview. I mean, it's it's such an interesting – it's amazing for me to even say this, to hear myself say it, because – Talk radio in the United States is so, let's say, challenging, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and some people might say toxic. and But mm-hmm. you were in, I mean, this is not that long ago. This is like 10 years ago in, yeah. in Gainesville, Georgia, doing a super thoughtful show in, in a very small market. I mean, this is like oh, weird. Yeah. It was co- um, co- comparatively weird to everything else out there. Oh, yeah. Understand <laughs> that I,
1: I was coming out of Rush Limbaugh.
0: On that station. So, oh, so you would... Yeah, on that uh, station. Right,
1: right. So you've got politics all day. I was the only non-political show in their
0: lineup. How did people respond in the community?
1: They really enjoyed it because, um, think about it, you've been working all day and uh, you're used to hearing politics, politics, politics. And all of a sudden, here comes this fun, energizing show... And, you know, we'd have Dolly Parton on one day and then the next day, you know, Jim Collins. And I told the producer, I said, when we come on and when we come back from break and we go into break, I want to play music that people are automatically humming and singing. I'm not trying to be cool. I just want to create
0: a connection. That that would eventually lead you to um – to work working with with Dave Ramsey, who, um, as, as as most people know, is like probably one of the best known financial experts in in the country. Actually, he's been on Wisdom from the Top. He was on on, on, on a previous season, um, and I still think about every time I, I I look at my mortgage. I think Dave Ramsey would say, "Paid off. Don't have my, <laughs> don't have a mortgage." Um, and he's right. Um, so, so you you go and join his kind of media budding media empire in in 2014, which is much much bigger now. Um, and and did you when when you I mean when you went because you're moving your whole family from Atlanta to Nashville at that point? Those I guess around 2014. At that yeah. point, did you did you bring the Ken Coleman show with you, or did you have to get kind of Sunset I had to let it go.
1: Hmm. Um, when Dave approached me, um, he said, Hey, we, uh, we want to hire you. And there's a, there's a three kind of pronged role here that we're cooking up for you. One is to uh, take over the Entree Leadership podcast which at that time still is one of the top leadership podcasts. And the second thing is we want you to be the face of our YouTube channel. And then uh, MCR Live Events, they did about 30 events at the time, and you're talking about thousands of people, and we want, you know, a full-time host. Hmm. And so because of that, I had to, you know, obviously let go of my radio show. But um, it was a no-brainer. I did it, and I I wrapped the show up. And uh, as far as I knew, the Ken Coleman Show was –
0: you know, in the cooler for a long time, if not forever. You know, it's it's interesting because you had this platform. It was you, your name. It was a small audience and then going to join yeah. Dave Ramsey's, a bigger platform. But yeah. in in a sense, even though it was a bigger platform and a step forward, it sounds like initially it was a, a little bit of a kind of a step backwards in order to – is that is that fair to to kind of characterize it that way or is that am i completely off base
1: no i think you're right i I think that i would just clarify that it was it was a step forward professionally but it was a step back personally and what i mean by that is i had to swallow my pride i had to uh you know, focus my attention on serving others for the opportunity to do what I wanted to do. Mm. So it was, I was coming in and I was going to be platforming everybody else and my voice was going to uh, uh, quiet as it related to pushing out the content that I believed in that I wanted to do. I knew it was going to be paused. Uh, so it was a great move professionally, but certainly personally, I had to swallow my pride and tremendous um it was a humbling situation but I knew it was right
0: eventually you were able to kind of revive the Ken Coleman show a different iteration which is the the sure. show you host today and it, it it's a show that is uh, I guess similar to what you had in Gainesville but but different in the sense that it focuses a, a lot on career advice is that is that fair to say yeah it's it it is
1: the ultimate Idea that I had, but I wasn't ready for it, and that is, it's caller-driven. So, you know, ninety percent of the show is is interaction with callers, Mm. and I am a uh, counselor at the start of the call. I'm a coach in the middle of the call, and I'm a cheerleader at the end of the call. And I'm primarily helping people uh, realize that work is not just this utilitarian function that we do to live, but that we live to work, and that's a salty. Proposition for a lot of people because of their views of work and their experience with work. And I'm trying to redeem work and help people see that there is a unique role that you were created to fill in your work through your work and that you were needed and that you must do it. Because somebody out there at the end of the day, when we all do our work, whether it's the plumber or the developer or the nanny or the coach uh, or the CEO, Somebody needs us to show up and be the best version of ourselves. Yeah. We have people crying. Uh we have people laughing and celebrating. Oh yeah. I mean it's real. It's intimate, man. They're calling me pretty vulnerable, you know, and, and they're asking me to 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 give them some direction and and uh it's I gotta tell you, guy, it's it's the most rewarding work I've ever done. I'm I, not surprised. I I'll
0: never tire of it. I'm not surprised. That the the show inspired a book that you put out in twenty nineteen, The Proximity Principle. Uh, and and I guess you were you were directly inspired by a a poll result you saw that showed that seventy percent of Americans are unsatisfied with their jobs. Yeah. Yeah. What what, what explains that?
1: A couple things. Uh, One, the way we view work, and then the educational marketing message that has Taken over our country. So, uh, the first is, you know, I touched on this a moment ago. um, People see work as it's just okay. I work to live. I need a good, solid job. If it turns to be a great job, woohoo! I'm certainly really lucky, and I'll count my blessings. But a good, solid job is what we want with a 401k and some good health benefits. So it's a, it is a functional part of their life that is about provision. It provides. Okay, So that's generally the the view of work. So people are like, oh I'm not even thinking about doing a job that I love that creates a result that matters to me. Mm. It just needs to be good, and I need to be good at it. So that's talent only and just functional only. So that's the first reason why so many people are disconnected. And then the second reason is is because uh, without becoming a history nerd and nerding out on this, in the 50s—so we're coming out of World War II— and somewhere in the 50s, uh, the Pell Grant becomes a thing helping, you know, families afford higher education, which yeah. is becoming more of a thing. And you know the history on this. And then that does so well that the federal government goes, well, hey, let's do uh, Fannie Mae and Sally Mae and let's let's do this thing. And so the federal government, no no, no fault uh, with this, but they go, this is a way for us to make money. And so they begin to provide loans. And and so thus the Student Loan machine begins to take off, and it now makes higher education more accessible. Sure. So now all of a sudden, higher education is big business. So the marketing message is, in the 70s, my good friend Mike Rowe shared this poster with me, Guy. I don't know if you've seen it. But in the 70s, there were posters in high school classrooms where it was a uh, two-sided, I mean, you're looking at a picture, and on one side, it's got this college grad beaming white teeth. And he's so happy and he's got the cap and gown on, and underneath him it says, work smart. And then on the other side, split screen, if you will, is the dude with a with a, a set of overalls on and, and grease on his face and a giant wrench that you could kill a bear with. And he's got this frown of misery on his face. And underneath him it says, not hard. Hmm. Work smart, not hard. And so the marketing message became drilled into kids and parents. Yeah. That if you want to work smart, Not hard. You want to work smart, be successful. You got to go to college. And so the marketing message is go to college, get a good degree and a good job. So those two factors combined together have created this perfect storm of people and jobs that they don't have any soul
0: for. When we come back in just a moment, Ken Coleman talks about his book, The Proximity Principle and his advice for finding work with a mission. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to Wisdom from the Top.
1: Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes.
0: Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. So we made ByHeart a better formula for formula. Learn more at ByHeart.com. Welcome back to Wisdom from the Top. I'm Guy Raz. Earlier, I asked Ken Coleman how he thinks we got into this predicament to begin with, where 70% of people are unsatisfied with their jobs. What is it in your view that prevents people from... You know, finding and by the way, the word success, we should just be clear it's and I say this again and again, it doesn't mean wealth. it doesn't mean it it can mean a myriad of things, but let's just for the purposes of of our conversation, let's define success as fulfillment, right? because yeah, I think that's I a great definition. What is it that limits people from finding fulfillment or success in in the work they do? Uh, certainly uh, a lack of of clarity.
1: There's not a construct aside from a parent or a coach or a teacher pulling a kid aside and 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 leaning into them and talking to them about, hey, what are you thinking about? What do, what do you long to do? What, what do you dream about? What do you wonder about? You know, it, 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 every human being comes into this world, guy, hardwired with curiosity. This is yeah. so beautiful. Yeah. You don't have to teach a toddler how That's to ask right. a question. That's right. And then I did research for uh, the first book I did entitled One Question. I found some research from the University of Michigan that said by the time the average American reaches the eighth grade, they only ask two to three questions a day. Now, I've got three teens, and I remember fondly the amount of questions those little human beings asked. <laughs> and it's in the hundreds. Yeah. Yeah. And so what is happening in our society that is beating the curiosity out of people by the eighth grade? And so I, I'm not trying to go too deep here, but but I, I really think that this is a, a societal behavior issue. Um, we're so programmed to get good grades so we can get to a good school and get a good job that we forgot how to wonder and we forgot to talk to our kids and talk to our spouses and talk to our brothers and our sisters and our friends about what do you wonder about doing? And to the point that there's some thought leaders that kind of poo-poo the age old question, what do you want to be when you grow up? Now it's meant to be a fun question and a conversation started with kids. But the fact of the matter is, is it, it, it's become a throwaway question as we get a little bit older. I think it's because largely because people don't ask the question, what am I created to do? And then they don't even know how to answer it. And that's where we've developed a very simple formula for self-awareness. Everybody's born with talent. Those are things you do well, hard skills, soft skills. Everybody's born with passion. This is something that makes your heart beat really fast and you're willing to suffer to do it. And I was willing to suffer to become a broadcaster. And the third piece is mission. Everybody has a sense of mission. Mm -hmm. What do I want to do and contribute What do I want to contribute to this world? So, when talent, passion, and mission align, you're in your sweet spot where people will look at you and go, You were born for this. So, that's why I got out of sports radio. It was two thirds of the equation. I had the talent, I was using my talent. I had the passion for performing and broadcasting, love it. But I wasn't producing results that mattered deeply to me. Sports radio is entertainment, and entertainment is beautiful, and entertainment is good. Uh, but for me, entertainment wasn't the missional result. I wanted to equip people. Mm. I wanted to uh,
0: encourage people through. You wanted podcasts. to bring Malcolm Gladwell to Gainesville, Georgia, right? Exactly. It's almost silly. Yeah, it's almost right. silly yeah. because no, right. yeah. people were like, "What? Who's this guy?" But that's the mission. You know? that's the mission. Yeah, you know, it's 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 interesting because it made me think of uh, a woman I met recently. We're we're part of a cooperative farm. Uh, in northern california where we have access to uh pick pick fruits and vegetables and flowers and uh we get raw milk from from the farm every week and, and a lot of people think that's weird but it's great um yeah. and uh, and anyway um this young woman who runs who grows the the vegetables and works really hard and and is is tending to these beautiful um fields and and struck up a conversation with her recently she's from missouri and um you know, asked her a bit about her background and, and she talked about how she was working a desk job and, you know, 10 years ago, she decided that she really wanted to be working the land, that that's what she wanted to do. And um, that's what brought her joy and fulfillment. And it was, it's just, you can see it in in how she is so connected to the work she does and the joy she no brings question. to people like us. That's right.
1: You could look at her. If you if you interviewed her, you you her top talents would line up with what she actually does. And then you'd see what's well, the work you do day in and day out. And she'd describe it. And there's a love for the work. And and then of course the end result is she is uh, influencing and serving people by by quality food and healthy foods. We're talking about transformational physical change. Yeah, when you eat the right stuff
0: can a lot of people often ask me and I know ask you well where do i go for ideas you know then they ask these questions in different ways so for me it's business ideas where do i what do i look where do i how do i find ideas and and you the the title of your book kind of begins to answer that question the proximity principle so can you define what what that is yeah. The proximity principle says this. In order to do
1: what you want to do, you've got to be around people that are doing that work and in places where that work is happening, the craft or the industry. If I'm around the right people in the right places, I'm going to learn what I need to learn. I'm going to get opportunity to do what I need to do. And I'm going to meet more of the right people. And I'm going to get opportunity to get into more of the right places. And that's where opportunity exists. Hmm. People in places.
0: And and a lot of this book is very very specific practical advice. I mean I mean you know you talk about things that again that may seem obvious to people, but so many of us don't do these things, like take any opportunity that is near you, right? I mean I mean when I read that, I thought, I mean this is a guy Ken Coleman who emceed an event of clowns and mimes in his thirties. <laughs> Uh, this is the, the Swanee Day event uh, back in in Swanee, Georgia, that you mentioned earlier. I mean, you emceed that event because you needed the experience of, yep. of in 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 doing that, and like that was not easy. But you knew no, that you had to awful. you had to do those things in order to be able to eventually do what you do now. Yeah, yeah.
1: You know, somebody asked me what was the what was so great about doing that. You talk about it like it was miserable. Yeah, it was miserable because no one was paying attention to me. And I felt like I was wasting my time. I could have been at home with my wife and kids. When I pulled into the driveway that night at the end of that day. I started at 12 and the event was over at 9. I got to introduce the smithereens. That was the one thing, okay? I got to introduce the, the smithereens at the end. Yeah, the band. Wow. And that was kind of cool. Yeah. Um, but I drive home just kind of going, what am I doing? I, I just blew a whole Saturday. I haven't seen my wife and kids. That was a colossal waste of time. Just really down. And – I remember sitting there in the driveway before I'm going into the house, trying to, you know, kind of gather myself and come in with a little bounce. And I remember just asking myself, do you really want to do this? Are you willing to do whatever it takes? Am I willing to suffer humiliation, suffer not being with my family uh, for that day? And the answer was yes. And so uh, the lesson learned from that day was, is this a passion?
0: And uh, the answer was yes. Um, people, people often will often say to me, and I know they say this to you, I don't know anybody. I don't have a big network. You actually yeah. very specifically recommend that people not attend networking events, which I love. Why? Yeah,
1: because it's a waste of time, uh, generally speaking. I mean, you may get one or two things out of it, but it's largely like a bunch of vampires running around looking for who they're going (laughs) to suck the blood out of. You know, it's just awful. (laughs) But people say, they'll hit me on social media when I say that on social. They'll go, come on, Ken, I've been to networking events and had great relationships. Sure, great. But those networking events are largely just everybody's there for themselves, As opposed to when you have a coffee or a lunch or a Zoom call or a phone call with somebody and you're there with a moleskin and a pencil, and you don't have to have a moleskin or a pencil. I'm speaking of a posture as much as I am practically, but you better be there to learn and you better be there to ask questions. And that provides value. People go, Ken, I've got nothing to offer. Yeah, you do. When you ask someone for their insight, which is knowledge and wisdom, which is experience, and you show them respect and honor and gratitude and asking, they feel so valuable, you've done them a huge favor. And so I teach the art of the one-on-one connection, being 15 to 20 to 30x more valuable than going to one networking event. So stop networking, start connecting.
0: I couldn't agree with you more. I think that, that what people often forget or don't realize is that, and this applies whether you're looking for a job or you're raising money for your business, it's it's so much better not to ask for the money or for the job, but to ask somebody for advice, yes. to go and ask them for, for their wisdom, to give you some yeah. of their wisdom, because that actually often leads to the money or the advice. Yes. Or the, or the job. I'll well, add be, one other yeah. thing.
1: Ask for a connection. Say, hey, I'm trying to meet somebody in television. I don't know anybody off the top of my head. Do you know anybody in television? As I just need uh, a conversation and a connection. Do you, do you have any connections? Do you know anybody that has connections? That in, in and of itself is, is something that makes somebody feel valuable. If they can open up a door for you, boy, it makes somebody feel wonderful.
0: Yeah. And I think people... People don't realize how, how many connections they actually have, even if they're introverts or even if they're, they're not you – know, didn't go to a top university, if, if they're in a small town. There are people around you. There are these concentric circles of people that you start to reach out to, and then those people can reach out to people they know. And it's actually amazing when people are kind of very deliberate and intentional about how they connect with people whose advice they're seeking. Yeah, I mean, listen, let's just blow the myth out of the water. I don't know anybody.
1: Okay. So I get callers calling all the time saying, "Ken, I love the proximity principle. I just don't know enough people to make it work." And I'll say, "Okay, how many people do you know?" Just tell me. I mean, let's 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 talk. Like, let's this us be real, okay? Friends, family, acquaintances, former coworkers, people on social media. And it's a funny guy how many times a caller will say, <laughs> "I don't know, 200." And I'll go, "Okay, great, 200." How many people would you guess, be conservative, not aggressive, would would you say each of those 200 people know? And they'll start to chuckle and they'll say, well, probably 200. And I'll go, have you done the math on that? That's a lot of people. Yeah. Okay, we're talking about tens of thousands of people that you have access to, not that you know. Um, There's some research done by a guy named Mark Granovetter, a sociologist, well-respected, who basically his research found that most people get their jobs – Through acquaintances. So we're talking about not people that you're doing life with, but people that maybe you see. And uh, the illustration I use a lot on the show is, is that if you're a parent and you've got kids that are playing sports, some of your greatest professional opportunities may lie on the bleachers or in the Eddie Bauer chair on the sideline. Mm. If you just talk to people, then you don't walk around like a vampire but just be interested and begin to talk about their life and then they're going to talk about your life and then be okay going hey do you happen to know anybody over at company XYZ because I've, I've been tinkering with the idea of, of going to work over there It is those simple conversations that many times are the rock that needed to be turned over for that for that you know that opportunity or for that door to swing wide open and so that's why we teach the proximity principle it's If I'm continually being around the right people in the right places, and this is just intentionality, then opportunities actually knock on my door when I least expect it. That's been my journey,
0: Ken. When you think about um, the the concept of leadership, right? Because you've you've spent and have been in, in leadership adjacent world for so so long in your career. I mean, you saw your dad; he was a leader. He led a, mm-hmm. a community. Do you think that you were born with those skills um, or do you think you developed them over time?
1: Um, I think you're born with raw talent of of what I would call influence, charisma, uh, the ability to connect well with others. You know, there's there's several ingredients that make up the talent of – of influence. Mm. And, and so then you out of that talent, if it's a lump of clay on the potter's wheel, we put that on there and we shape ourselves and we learn the skill of leadership because leadership is a skill. I think we've made becoming a great leader – really, really complex. Yeah, And I don't think it's complex. I think leadership is hard, but I think leadership is simple, meaning you're leading people. And so people are people that are imperfect and people are the greatest thing about leadership. And they're also the worst thing about leadership. So leadership is hard because people disappoint you and you're imperfect and you're going to blow it. So that's why leadership is hard. But leading people day in and day out is pretty simple. You will be a good leader. If you just do these two things, these are two questions you ask your people that you're leading, your team on a very regular basis. The first is, how are you doing? That's a personal question. Not like we see each other in the hallway. Hey, how you doing? And it's just a, yeah. it's a greeting, it's not a question. I mean eyeball to eyeball. How are you doing personally? Family good? Husband okay, wife, Mom and dad, kids, school. A real question of connection. Mm-hmm. How are you doing? And the second question is, how can I help you win? Hmm. Now, those two are ridiculously simple questions. And I don't care if you've ever led a day in your life. If you do those two things and then act on them. So when the personal stuff comes up, act with empathy and compassion. When the professional stuff comes up, you better get your hands dirty, get in there and help them and serve them and give them what they need to win. Uh, You'll be a fabulous leader.
0: That's Ken Coleman, host of The Ken Coleman Show and author of The Proximity Principle. By the way, Ken mentioned his first ever interview for the show with Jimmy Carter. Well, nearly as cool, his first interview ever was back when he was a copy editor for Fox Sports. And at the last minute, the host got sick and Ken had to fill in and do the interview with Duke basketball legend Mike Krzyzewski. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary and Built It Productions.